used to, at some times, preach in his sleep. He would speak Bible verses in his sleep. He would talk uh, out loud. And on one occasion, on a late on a Saturday night, in the middle of the night, his wife, uh, Suzanne, uh, he was preaching so impassionately in what he was saying that she wrote it down. She wrote it down, and the next morning she handed it to him, and Charles Spurgeon went straight to church and preached it that morning. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You know, I honestly don't think that these dreams that he would have uh, were all about his great intellect and his great preaching ability. Uh, when someone pursues righteousness and they saturate them, their lives with the Word of God, saturate it with the kingdom of God, even in your dreams at night, uh, you are thinking about uh, Christ and testifying to Him. It spills over into your life, even into your dreams. You know, sometimes I think if we were to take our dream from the night before and have to stand up and preach to others about it, what would our dream look like? What are we thinking about? What's on our mind? Uh, do we dream about, verse 11, uh, righteous things like godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness? If we don't, if we don't do that, uh, Scripture indicates it may be because those things just don't automatically happen. They don't just come out of nowhere. They don't, we don't stumble upon righteousness. And uh, sometimes people get saved and then they figure they can just check out afterwards. You know, I'm going to let Jesus slide in behind the wheel. He's going to drive me around. He's going to handle my life. And, and uh, they're going to somehow just tag along and not participate. They're, they're going to be a passenger. You know, I'm just going to hang around. I'm not going to do anything until uh, the Spirit prompts me to. Waiting around and waiting around and waiting around for something to happen. You know, uh, the scripture, scripture doesn't say that about righteousness. It's not automatic. You are perfected in Christ. You become righteous before God in, in the blood of the Lamb of God. But your ongoing salvation and sanctification and pursuit of righteousness is not just something that happens without you participating in it. We have to grasp hold of it. Uh, if, Timoth if Timothy had to actively pursue righteousness... Certainly we have to pursue righteousness. We're not a bystander. And in verse 12, it reemphasizes this need of our active participation. Uh, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. In this verse, uh, we see this magnificent balance uh, of God's sovereignty followed by a man's responsibility to participate in this thing. The, the pursuit of godliness. Uh, this phrase that it says, to which you were called. It's known among theologians as a divine passive, they call it. Simply indicating that the calling wasn't from the men or the women. The calling comes from God. And uh, the language is written so that man has no hand in it. We don't achieve eternal life. Eternal life is something that God calls us to. John 10, 28 uh, says uh, by Jesus, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So our initial salvation and our eternal security are God's dominion. He handles that. But in between, the Christian has a responsibility. 
We, we have this initial calling. Later, God is going to call us home. But in the meantime, we have to embrace that responsibility that we have that God has called us to in pursuing righteousness and preaching Christ. You know, when you think of Joshua in the kingdom, he said, Today, decide whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. You have to make a decision that you're going to serve the Lord. It's written in, the, in verse 12 as an imperative. Uh, being made alive to Christ, now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are to fight the good fight. We are to take hold of the eternal life God has given us. He's called us to. And, and this word fight, it literally means to agonize over something. It was used in military battles to describe those. It was used a, a lot of athletic contests to strive to agonize to the point of exhaustion, Paul is asking us. And uh, do you see, see anything uh, with, these pa- with this passage It makes it look like it's passive somehow? That we are not to, to embrace this or engage it. Is it something that just happens? Or is it something that we have to follow through on? Obviously, we've got to follow through on our responsibility. And, and your salvation, uh, that should begin by first making your initial confession through baptism. That's the typical way we see it, but you have an initial confession at one point where you did that, where you, to- where you told others about Christ, you told him many witnesses that you had become a Christian, and that is to be followed through by making good on that confession. Not checking out. Not checking out. Because as I said on the outset, you know, a whole lot of people have made that uh, a confession but then they become AWOL somehow in the meantime. Absent without leave. They've checked out. And uh, many in this passage, in this context, got distracted. They got distracted by the lures of the world, by money. They checked out. Kind of reminds me of that guy in Jericho. He liked shiny things. What was his name? Aiken. He liked shiny stuff. And they just across the Jordan, God had just delivered uh, Jericho into their hands. And rather than obeying and serving, he wanted to grab as much stuff as he could. Silver and gold and, and mantle and that's where he, his life went. I want to say, man, Achan didn't just pay for that. For the fathers here, the husbands here. Achan's whole family paid for that mistake of chasing after money and the lures of the world. We need to fight the good fight. And uh, Paul uh, finds it pragmatic in verse 12 to remind Timothy, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We don't know for certain. Most commentators agree uh, that this, I believe it's accurate, was probably a reference to Timothy's water baptism made in the presence of of many witnesses. We don't know for certain that's what he's talking about, but for the typical Christian, that would be what we're talking about. Make good on on your confession. You made it in in the presence of many witnesses. Now you aren't following through. That's Paul's concern of not following through. Um, Verse 13 says, Jesus says, 
uh, Paul is giving Jesus now as, as a model to Timothy, saying, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who also, notice, testified the good confession. Same words, same identical words. Before Pontius Pilate, and, and that you keep the commandment, Paul tells him. Again, no passivity here. This is a solemn charge to Timothy to embrace his responsibility. Uh, and, and a charge before the presence of God. How much more solemn can you get than a charge before the presence of God to embrace your responsibility? And, and Timothy, he'd been called to eternal life. He'd been called to Christian service. He'd, he'd made a public confession. He and we are being warned not to abandon that. Don't abandon that initial confession. really ought to be frightening. It is frightening by all appearances. People will walk away from their initial confession. And Paul seems to be indicating here that it's very plausible for a genuine Christian after that initial confession, confession to walk away. To walk away. Um, likely he's concerned here because of the first century Christians in Ephesus. They're running into a lot of resistance. Remember, we don't know whatever happened to those initial elders. They got run off somewhere. Something happened to them. Now Timothy's standing in. And Paul knows... Paul knows. You know, he was a person just like us. He knows how eager the flesh is to just give up. You know, I'll just take it easy, I'll give up. Paul knows that. He wasn't a superhero. He was a man of God, and he wants Timothy to be a man of God. And he knew Timothy, he'd from time to time feel that desire to just give in. Timothy, don't do that. Especially under, under pressure of others, he tells them. And, and he reminds Timothy, you know, Jesus, he's our example. How much better of an example can we get than Jesus Christ standing before Pontius Pilate as he's about to be crucified and yet unwavering he makes the good confession. You're right, I'm the Christ. I'm the one. To the point again where Pilate wanted to release him. Yet the crowd called out for Barabbas. You know, Christ was staring death in the face. Staring evil in the face, even death on a cross. Yet, yet under this intense pressure, Christ, he made good on his confession. He followed through on his confession. He didn't waver. And Pontius Pilate's question was, are you the king of the Jews? Are you? Jesus said, you say correctly that I am a king. And for this reason I have been born. For this reason I have come into the world to testify to the truth. That's a good confession. That's what we're to do. Testify to the truth of who Christ is. If Jesus would not de deny who he is in the face of a cross, why is it that we so willingly will deny in our leisure? Day-to-day -day life, we fear little things. We, we fear sharing a tract with someone because of the response we might get. We fear uh, bridging the gospel with people, even our family members. And uh, it, it is intimidating. We're not minimizing that. But, but there is, just isn't that much persecution here. We aren't facing a cross. But we need to take forth uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ without fear. Uh, after the, Christ, the sacrifice that Christ made to us, the Holy Spirit that Christ gave to us to empower us, you know, we ought to be bold as lions. And I know sometimes we are. Each of us at one point or another are. 
And we need to be bold more often. Uh, very often, uh, early in, in with Joshua, he was told over and over again, be bold and courageous. Folks, we need to be bold and courageous. Spread the gospel. Instead, sometimes, uh, instead of being lions, a lot of times we're behaving like a chihuahua. Why do we do that? What's the worst they can do to us? I tell you, I tell you. Um, we aren't courageous enough. I don't know why we worry so much. We worry about little things. That <laughs> reminds me of uh, long before we came to Christ, I just met Rita and we were living in, in Clearwater, Florida, long before going to Texas. And... Uh, long before becoming Christians. And there was, we had a horse that we kept at a stable, and we let them all out together. And uh, there, there were other horses out there during the day, and one was this massive Belgian. Just a beautiful animal. Huge! But then there was this little miniature pony that was let out with him. No kidding here. I wish I had video on my camera back then. I didn't even have a cell phone back then. But this, this little miniature pony or miniature horse, mean. Just mean. And it would take after that Belgian, and that Belgian would take off running. And it would be squealing as it would be running from that little miniature, and that little miniature would have its head up right on the rear. That big old Belgian, you know, I just thought to myself from time to time, why doesn't he just turn around and step on him? That was before I knew Grace. We have nothing to fear. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We need to grab hold of our testimony. Be bold. What Paul is concerned about here, it's very real. Um, we do need to beware and be concerned because uh, there are a whole lot of passages in the Bible really that, that indicate that uh, some will shrink away in shame when the Lord returns. Even some believers are going to shrink away in shame. See that in 1 John 2.28. Um, some Christians pretty much abandon work. Uh, there are other passages as well. We look at 1 Corinthians 3.15, uh, that our kingdom-building effort, it's going to be tested, and for many it's going to be wood, hay, and straw. And Scripture says that it will be burned up. He will suffer loss, yet he himself will be saved. So there's going to be a lot of, a lot of testing as we, as we see, the, see the Lord on our kingdom-building effort. If it's wood, hay, and straw, it's going to be gone. Gone in a moment. We have to be concerned about the quality of our work. And I believe most of us agree that after our baptism, we should make some kind of progress. We need to make some kind of progress. Uh, Certainly, we have periods of great spiritual development. I know I've had that in my life. There are other times where we feel like we've plateaued. Sometimes we become discouraged. But we need to know there's an there's, there's a time drawing near where Jesus Christ is going to come back. He's going to appear. Uh, verse 14. Timothy and, and, and us, we should all have an increasing desire to keep the commandments of God without stain or reproach. Interesting term here, commandments. It could all be translated, also be translated commission. It was used of military orders and other things. Uh, keep the orders of the king. Keep the commission. Because in verse 14 it says, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to come about at the proper time. 
It's going to come about. He will bring it about. God has this predetermined plan. There's going to be a consummation of the kingdom. And He's coming back. You know, some people have this notion of a God who's just hanging around up there, waiting for possibly things to fall into place. Perhaps if He just waits long enough, things will, circumstances will come to the point where His Son can sneak back in. That's not at all what we find in Scripture. And that's such an insufficient view of God. He is so much more holy and powerful than that. And God's not at the beck and call of the creation that He built. The creation that He made. Uh, He's not just waiting for things to fall together. Christ is coming, folks. Christ is coming. It's a predetermined plan. It's a day and the hour where Christ didn't even know. God, our Father, has said it. It's irrevocable. It's going to happen. So so if, if we don't believe God's in control, if we think that He's somehow dependent upon circumstances to fall into straight into place, waiting for circumstances to fall into place, even at His Son's crucifixion? I don't think so. That's not a proper view of God. Um, That's a different God than we see in the Bible. God's not a victim. He's not subject to surprise. He's in the process of redeeming His church. That's what He does. And that's the work that He has called us to do. God is, according to verse 15, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and glory and eternal dominion. Amen. You know, God's not only sovereign, he is the only sovereign. You see that? The only sovereign. There's no other. There's no other sovereign in the Bible. There's no other sovereign in existence. You know, sovereign, it's a word that we don't easily grasp. The authority that is with it. We, we don't even like it. We don't even like the thought of someone else being sovereign. Sovereign means it's one who has an ability. It's a capacity and a power. And the only one who has that power. God's exclusive on a sovereignty. You all know that, right? He's exclusive on that. He doesn't share it. We need to know that because in the world today, we got this idea that somehow we're sovereign. There's this idea being passed around that somehow you can speak your future into existence. It's called the principle of I am. Have you heard about it? Yeah. Yeah, that's God. Exactly. That's where we're going to get to that. And supposedly on Christian TV and book stands today, Supposedly us as a finite, a sinful creature, we're in control of our own destiny. And uh, one popular pastor has said, you know, you have the power to speak things into existence. Wow. Sound like anybody you know? You think you're God? Really? He calls it the principle of I am. Supposedly to be happy, all you got to do is say, I am happy. You speak your circumstances into existence. You want to be wealthy and successful? That's easy. It's in your words. Just repeat after me. I'm successful. Boom. And supposedly, the universe cannot resist our sovereign declaration. Can you imagine that? We need to really get real, folks. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. There's one sovereign, and it is is God Himself. And He's the only one who ever speaks anything into existence. It's not us. It's not us. And uh, 
It's not up to us to correct people who are doing that. It's up to us to, to warn others. That's it. There's nothing biblical about that type of uh, philosophy or theology. Uh, that a man or woman who would believe that they can say, I am, and then speak into existence the words that follow, you're hijacking God's name and his power. That's blasphemy right there. You cannot do that. Um, instead, how does the Bible actually dis- describe you and me? John, James 4. Yeah, we're to humble himself. But James 4, how does he describe us? A vapor. Congratulations, you're a vapor. You ever see that on TV? Congratulations, you're a vapor. James 4.14 says that we can't even make a profit selling a hot dog without God involved. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor. You appear for a little while and then you vanish away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Why is it when we say what we're going to do without God involved, that's so evil? It's because we believe we're sovereign. We're not sovereign. That's evil. That is seizing God's uh, position, his title. God, he's created everything. He's created our very souls. He's created all that is in existence. He's in control. He is sovereign. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he alone possesses immortality. Alone. We will. Um, Um... The Gospel of John says that uh, no one has ever seen God at any time. That uh, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. See, we struggle with this principle. Christ is the manifestation of God. No one's ever seen God. Even with Moses, God had to put Him in a cleft of a rock and shield Him from His glory and His train And no one has ever seen God. He dwells in unapproachable light. Um, Every time that we see God in Scripture appear, He's cloaked in some fashion. Some way that He's cloaked. You know, when Jesus came to earth, God's Son was born in human flesh, that perfect unity between God and man existed. But somehow, that flesh cloaked the divinity of Jesus. Don't ask me how it works. We just take it on faith. We'll know when we see him as he is. Uh, We won't get a full grasp of everything here. But the principle remains that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh. And and Timothy, Timothy had to make good on his confession. You and I have to make good on our confession. And uh, we have to recall who we're serving. We're serving the King of Kings, the Lord, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. What I think in a nutshell here, as we wrap up, Paul is saying to Timothy, think back to your initial confession. Does everyone here remember that? Your initial confession, when you were baptized, you made that initial profession. Think back to that. The joy you had when you went into the water, especially in baptism, and you come out with that profession, in my case, just screaming praises to Jesus Christ. Think back to that, how Christ has borne our sins on the cross, 
borrow some language from Paul, he said, at that point, when you learned that at first, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. It was such a joyous occasion. You would have done anything to have salvation. And we should each remember that as, as we look back, as Timothy was to look back at his profession. And, and Paul asked, though, the Galatians later, what happened to you? What hindered you? What's wrong? Why aren't you following through? Why aren't you making good on what you professed? And, and the writer of Hebrews does the same thing. This is something the church has struggled with from the beginning. And, we, and, and the writers of the epistles have em, embattled this. Uh, they've been in battle. And Hebrews says in, in chapter 10, verse 32, Remember the former days. Saying, look back. When after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Partly from, by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. That's those who were in prison for their faith. And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have a, for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one in heaven. You joyfully accept the seizure of your property. Would we do that? That day may come. That day may come. Paul's telling Timothy, be ready. Be ready. I'm going to ask the men to come forward as we prepare, prepare to pay honor to Christ. Uh, we're going to celebrate God's sovereign dominion over His creation and uh, Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. This is through the Lordship, uh, the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His His Supper. And this question is before you: Does your confession, looking back at that first-time confession, does it more resemble a one-time event, or does it resemble? an ongoing confession of Jesus Christ. As we take communion here and confess Jesus Christ, uh, His resurrection, His return through communion, um, it's an opportune time to recommit to our Savior, confess our sins to Jesus Christ and and to fellow man, and uh, thank God for the blood sacrifice that Christ made.